Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. In this episode, Dr. Nestor Medina talks to Dr. Amos Young about his new book, Renewing the Church by the Spirit, Theological Education After Pentecost. This episode of OP Talks is part of the Theological Education Between the Time series, an initiative out of HTI Member School, Emory University, Chandler School of Theology. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. To all of our listeners, welcome to HDI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Nestor Medina, and I am Assistant Professor of Religious Ethics and Culture at Emmanuel College in the University of Toronto. Today, our distinguished guest is Dr. Amos Young. Uh, at one point, he and I were colleagues, so I'm really delighted for him to be here. And if it's okay, I'm going to call you Amos. Absolutely. Amos, <laughs> Amos is a professor of theology and mission, dean of the School of Mission and Theology, and chief academic officer at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He's also licensed as a minister with the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel, and he has authored and edited uh, just a little bit, over 55 volumes and so I'm just delighted to have you here. And so I just want to welcome you, Amos. Thank you very much for having me. The, yeah, the occasion of our podcast today is to briefly discuss your book uh, on theological education, which came out in 2020 and was published by Ehrman's Publishing House. For those interested, the title of the book is a renewing, renewing the Church by the Spirit in a subtitle, Theological Education After Pentecost. So if that's okay, Amos, I'm going to jump to the first question. In your larger journey, both as a minister and as an author, and particularly as a Pentecostal believer, where does this book on theological education fit in terms of how much uh, your understanding of theological education has changed? and the role it plays both in academia and the church. So can you speak to that? It's a very complicated question. <laughs> Again, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor for me to be here, a joy for me to be here in this podcast. Um, and thank you for um, inviting me to think and, and talk about this recent book, fairly recent book from last year. Um, it's, it's my first book on theological education, uh, maybe my last book on theological education, formally speaking. But um, I think, as you had mentioned, you know, I've, I come from a Pentecostal background, and much of my scholarly work has been devoted to exploring a variety of theological themes and topics from my Pentecostal perspective or Pentecostal church ecclesial uh, set of perspectives. And, and in that respect, this book is, is uh, part and parcel of that uh, journey um, as a Pentecostal Christian, as one who's participated in Pentecostal charismatic communities, attempting to think theologically from out of those communities. Um, this was my attempt to think about the nature and the task of theological education today from within that kind of a Pentecostal charismatic uh, context or set of contexts. And to the degree, I think that I think as we, as many of us know, you know, the, the world Christianity, um, uh, Christianity around the world has continued to grow over the last century and particularly in the last 50 years uh, outside of the West. 
and, and much of that growth has been dominated by Pentecostal charismatic kinds of churches, traditions, and movements. Mm -hmm. uh, much of that then has come into play in my thinking about theological education, this sort of global Pentecostal charismatic context. I guess the last thing then the, the last thing I would mention along these lines is that um, I came to Fuller Seminary in 2014 um, after, uh, yes, you and I had spent a, a little bit of time together at another institution for a few years before then, but I came to Fuller in 2014. And while trained as a theologian, I landed at Fuller Seminary at that time in the School of Intercultural Studies. Now, right. as, of, as of a year ago, the School of Theology and the School of Intercultural Studies reconstituted themselves as one school of mission and theology here at Fuller. Oh, that is cl that clarifies a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, but from 2014 to 2020, I was a member of the School of Intercultural Studies. And okay. I directed the PhD program in intercultural studies, which was also um, a PhD program in missiology, uh, mm -hmm. basically. So that was, in some respects, my own baptism into the missiological arena, formally speaking. And from that perspective, I don't think I could have written this book on theological education with the fairly hefty missiological focus and, and mm. fairly hefty missiological apparatus, if you will, mm -hmm. um, unless I had come to Fuller and, and undertaken that journey with my intercultural studies colleagues and bring that missiological perspective. And again, I, I would say that it's, of course, beforehand, I would have obviously stated that missiology and theology belong together, but I would not have had the, the depth of, of argumentation or the depth of understanding right. to actually unfold what unfold what that meant both theologically and missiologically and in this in the case of this book for the purposes of theological education so i, I commend it to to my readers that that's you know from the perspective of saying yeah it provides a certain set of pentecostal charismatic perspectives emphasis on the work of the holy spirit which is a characteristic of much of my exploration across the decades mm -hmm. but now with a with a fairly strong missiological motif says that theological education that is not informed by our call to participate in the mission of God um, will always be a bit sterile, and we can unpack that more a little bit as we go forward. All right. Well, thank you so much. That I mean, that your whole elucidation and explanation of how um, this school of missions emerged that is quite helpful, both in terms of your engagement with intercultural studies and now uh, missions more formally in its broad sense. But because of that kind of leads me to the second, to a second question, thinking about in your book, you talk about the reconfiguration of the church, right? How the church is being kind of redone uh, ethnoculturally, linguistically, religiously, right? And, and how communications technology and transnational relations and a host of other issues are, are inviting us to rethink or reinvent what it means to do church, right? Or be church for that matter. So I'm hoping, uh, you know, you can speak to that, that, that deep or profound change that the church is undergoing. Well, how much deep and profound time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, now, I'll, I'll just make a couple brief comments along these lines. I think first on the technological front, I think, as we all know, uh, we're, we're now just coming out of, you know, the COVID pandemic. And, and even here, I mean, we're relatively privileged to be able to, quote unquote, come out of, whereas I think in still much of the world, um, there, there are a lot of challenges related to it. And I, sure. I, think, I think we all realize that 
whatever coming out of the pandemic means, uh, our post-COVID realities are never going to be quite as simple as simply going back to, you know, prior to uh, 2020. But, right. but, but certainly, I think one of the issues that has emerged in, in full force for the church, as well as for theological education, when we've all had to go online, is what is the nature of our work together uh, in this flattened, mediated space, digitally mediated space? And how do we, totally. how do we think creatively and yet faithfully? And we act creatively and faithfully as a network global church. Um, I mean, this particular podcast, while possible before COVID, has become much more prominent in terms of its mediated forms uh, in light of... For sure. I think the other part... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, the other part of... Um, uh, what has emerged, I think, with really full force in this last year has been the fact that uh, the enterprise of theological education, I mean, you and Esther are situated in Toronto. Uh, yeah. We've worked together in the United States. Uh, but obviously, as we know it, the Association of Theological Schools is a North American organization, right. uh, representative of North American histories, North American commitments, North American resources, North American domination, if you will, uh, yeah. in, the global, in, in the global stage. And, and on the one hand, I think you and I are thankful that we have jobs at theological sure. institutions in North America. And, and obviously, we want to continue to do our best as faithful uh, theological educators in our respective contexts. But, but we all know that the pandemic and the last four years of our political North American climate have really unearthed how um, Eurocentric, um, not only our theology, I mean, how Eurocentric our churches are, and therefore, and therefore the polarizations that exist within our churches, but Absolutely. also from that perspective, how the country with the greatest amount of theological resources in the world um, has nevertheless produced the kinds of churches that we have produced. Um, that has uh, unfolded with with mm -hmm. all of the with all of the pain and with all of the uh, uh, the tragedy of the last four four plus years, right? So, yeah. on the one hand, we can say it's all them, but on the other mm -hmm. hand, to the degree that that we have been the theological institutions that have produced the pastors and the church leaders, right. uh, we've we've got to take some of that responsibility. And so, mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that the church is growing around the world. Um, in, in, in very non-white spaces, but yet influenced by North American um, uh, you know, uh, trajectories and, and relationships and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, that just invites, I think, the kind of both rethinking and reconstructing that we need to do as theological educators, which is how do we um, not minimize the role of the North American church and its institutions, its theological educational institutions in this global context, yeah. But yet, at the same time, recognize that um, there needs to be a more multilateral dialogical uh, undertaking in theological education. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, that that allows learning to flow in multiple directions and uh, south south east, you know, east east, um, yes. north south northeast, uh, etc. You know, west east, and so I mean, all of these different directions. I think is is what we need to continue to foster and facilitate, so that we can so that we can continue to learn with, with the global church, not just right. assume that, that what we have developed here is sufficient, because we know it's not. It's not even sufficient right. for, for our own context. 
much less for the rest of the world, right? Absolutely. Um, and yeah. so I, I think that's that's really both the opportunity and the challenge before us at this point. Right. Yeah, there's a real paradox in terms of the kinds of churches that have been that have emerged, uh, particularly in the type of detrimental sentiments that we have been able to witness. Um, as part of that, you also suggest that um, in your project, dealing more particularly with the browning of the church, uh, that um, these whole range of different groups are now emerging and should be part or should be theological actors, right? In theological education or the who in your book, right? And so, of course, you know, I'm a brown guy. I am a Latino. And so I am going to ask you a Latino question. That had to come up, right? I mean, really. So I, I really would love for you to to comment on, on on where and or how you see Latino, Latina, Latinx theological voices in churches contributing to this these new conversations, uh, specifically with regards to theological education. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Of course, um, and I think as you know, um, I'm married to a I'm married to a Latina, right? So there's, yes. there's something very personal here as well as about that question. Although I think, as you also know. Um, this notion of the browning of the North American church is, is not only about specifically Latin, Latina, Latino, Latinx of course. contributions, yes. right? Yes. And I think that's really the, the larger question because there's a real sense in which um, our various groups have, you know, myself as an Asian American, married to a Latina, but yet, mm-hmm. as, as you also well know, even Asian Americans have had a difficult time. Um, uh, developing solidarities across, if you will, these Asian American mm-hmm. lines. And that's in part why this notion of Asian American itself emerged as a political category, because there were there were just too many silos, even within the quote unquote Asian field, right? Yes. And, and, and there's a certain sense in which I think when we look at, you know, when we look at Central America, South America, and the entire uh, Latino world, if you will, as well, there's a lot of differences, a lot of complexities across that field. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense in which I think we're all invited to new assessments of uh, the kinds of relationships that we need to forge. Um, and, and how have the, if you will, the, the Euro-American, more or less white centers of power inhibited uh, the, these kinds of more uh, brown conversations uh, within Asian, in Asian American communities, with, within Latino, Latina communities, and then across between mm-hmm. Latinx and Asian American and African American, African diaspora. Um, all of these, I think, I think are in part what need to emerge. And, uh, but I'm, I'm really, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm also very excited about the ways in which uh, many of our Latinx brothers and sisters, that particularly also in, in Pentecostal communities, have begun to emerge in the last uh, probably decade or two. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you, you're well aware of, of these, uh, Nestor. I mean, uh, at our prior institution, um, you and uh, our brother Sammy Alfaro co-edited a volume on uh, Pentecostal charismatic yes. communities in Latin America. Um, That's right. That we were really excited to, you know, came out of a conference that we organized together. Um, yeah. So people like yourselves uh, doing the kind of work that you're doing, uh, Sammy Alfaro doing the kind of work he's doing, I've got a colleague here at Fuller Seminary, um, Oscar Garcia Johnson, who is yes, yes, uh, American Baptist, but he calls himself American Baptocostal, relative <laughs> yes. to his own, his own charismatic journey. 
Um, and, and I think as we all know, I mean, many of our Latino uh, evangelical or Christian communities across Latino, Latinx world are, are also very charismatic and even Pentecostally tinged, right? So it's very much it's nurturing those kinds of conversations, bringing forth um, you know new Pentecostal charismatic uh, 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 resources from our uh, from south of the border, so to speak, mm -hmm. into the into the northern conversations. Uh, I think those are in part they have been happening. We we need to keep finding ways to facilitate that ongoing exchange of conversation. Uh, for the benefit of the global church, and and you know it's selfish, but for the benefit of the North American church, and and my hope is that because of our our centrality in so many nodes, that as we are diversified ourselves, that we can then in turn also continue to be a blessing. Uh, yes. In other places. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Now there is a kind of a second portion to that same question. Um, you are familiar with the Hispanic Theological Initiative and the Association for the, Edu of the Hispanic Theological Education, and, you know, the FTE as well. So there is a range of organizations that are uh, designed to support this, this new emerging generation of quote-unquote brown uh, leaders in, in, theological, in theological education. I mean, uh, the HDI's Professional Development Conference is one major place where a lot of these students uh, come Latino, Latina, and Latinx students come and be supported. I mean, I met your son Isaiah there. Um, it, uh, anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> but uh, I was just delighted to see all these points of connections, right? Or how it is that even our churches, even quote-unquote brown churches, are being uh, complexified by virtue of the different Asian presence or the African presence and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, what I wanted to to hear you on is to, just for you to reflect on uh, briefly on 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 the kind of contribution that HDI, a place like HDI, can can make in in this a new reconstitution of the church, but as well of this new reconstitution of theological education. Yeah, thanks. No, I I'm I'm just very grateful for a group like HDI. Um, I didn't have an HDI per se. But I will share with you a little bit of my own journey, which was nurtured in a group called the Society for Pentecostal Studies. Yes. And I, th I think you've been a part of the SPS world uh, here and there as well. But for me, I think what was so important about that group was that it gave me a space to develop uh, sort of critical thinking as a Pentecostal scholar, as a young Pentecostal scholar. It gave me conversation partners that I didn't have in my churches. Uh, uh, in, in, in those contexts. And I think that's what HTI has done over the decades, meaning that it's, it's been a space that has brought together students with mentors and with other students. And of course, we develop these relationships and they, they nurture us over a lifetime. They, they nurture us in terms of uh, giving us a safe uh, context within which to discuss difficult issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, that context of discussion that allows us to develop a vocabulary, right? That that in our churches potentially are not going to be developed, or they're going to be more difficult because uh, you know the 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 kinds of discussions maybe that our pastors can have with us or other church members are 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 
I mean, they're going to be, they are going to be what they are relative to those particular contexts. So HTI, I think, has given uh, a generation of Latinx uh, and, and quote unquote brown students access to mentorship, access to one another, developing relationships, forging a partnerships mm -hmm. that have led into, you know, opportunities to write grants together, to engage in research together, to publish together. Uh, all of which I think means, therefore, that um, it's much less lonely world as a scholar right. in the 2020s than it was when probably you and I started, or at least <laughs> when I started, you know, 30 sure. years ago, um, where you kind of had to make it on your own. And of course, without the internet, but you did find a few friends in places right. like SPS and others that, that then helped you along the way. I do mm -hmm. think that HTI has been, um, and of course, SPS being what it was, wasn't as helpful in the areas of thinking about the racialized character of the church. Right. Uh, I think it's that conversation's grown in a place like the Society of Pentecostal Studies over the last 10 to 15 years, mm -hmm. but it's still, it's still relatively underdeveloped uh, right, right. in a real sense, right? Whereas I think HTI, I think, has really assisted, I think, its, its students and its members in a, a more critical race consciousness, so to speak. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned Isaiah earlier, um, you know, so he, he has done not just critical race theory, but, but multi-crit theory based upon the fact that he's half Chinese. Yes. I mean, half, what, what does half mean? But he's, you know, he's, he's Chinese, you know, Mexican uh, in his yes. own sort of body, right? And, yeah. um, and, and therefore, I mean, he's at the point of bringing these uh, theoretical tools to bear on what does it mean to have compassion upon ourselves right. as uh, racially, ethnically, uh, dually embodied, or in his, you know, multiply embodied person, uh, mm -hmm. and, then his, and then his wife and his children. And so, I mean, th that's the world in which we live in. And I do think places like HTI have given tools and resources for students to, to really press into those spaces. Whereas I think for myself as an Asian American and on my own journey, I, I, I didn't have as much access uh, when I was developing to Asian American context. And even if I did at the time, I think the Asian American experience, as you well know, is, is a bit different from the Latinx. Very experience. different. Yes, so yes. We were less inclined to ask the kinds of questions, I think, about racialization that, that the Latinos, because of their direct experience, I mean, their differentiated experience of it, right? Yes. Um, and, and then approach to it, I think, equipped a generation of students to begin to press into those issues and, and begin to develop some more constructive ways to engage with these theologically, um, which is really what I'm grateful for in terms of uh, HTI's ongoing contribution, which, of course, I'm not trying to reduce HTI's contribution to that arena, but I think it's been a strength of right. the organization, unlike you know, um, others that, I'm, that right. I've been a part of. Yeah, you, you're just making me uh, think of my own experience when I got to uh, Toronto uh, and I applied and I was admitted into the University of Toronto. I was the only Latino and and I was the only Latino theologian for, for over a decade. So, so that's, uh, you know, that, that, that level of experience where where you don't have a lot of people to connect with. So that's where HTI came my, my go to place to try to find a community which is a nice segue into my very last question because I don't want to keep you too long. But uh, 
Um, as you know, uh, we Latinos and Latinas and Latinx speak about Teología en Conjunto. We talk about Lo Cotidiano and a range of other theological categories. So one of the things that was exciting about your 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 proposal in your book is this this whole reimagining of community in a in a in a sense that is very very much a, a pluricultural or multicultural multilingual and had that draws from many experiences and so on and so forth. And, and then you bring that aspect together with the imagination of the Holy Spirit at work in this multiple new realities. I mean, I'm reminded of the work of Loida Martelo Otero, uh, Elizabeth Conde Frazier and Saida Maldonado Perez in, in naming the spirit, the wild child, right? The one that cannot, that is irreducible or is untamable, right? So, so as I was reading your, your book, I, I could see echoes of that in terms of how we can reimagine theological education. And so I guess one of the things that I would really like you to, to just comment on is, is about this theological education you envisioned. And, you know, how do you envision it and how do you see the experience of God and, and the power of the spirit to, to you know, coming to, into flesh, so to speak? I hope that makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean, that that's, I mean, theological conversation is gratuitous in the sense that we're all haltingly, you know, attempting to name something that in some respects is ineffable, right? And yes. so um, it, it's part of the opportunity of the challenge of, of theological discourse at a certain level. But I, I think I would answer your question maybe of course, by inviting your listeners, hopefully to pick up the book, but, but uh, there's a couple ways in which I think that um, I, I would sort of flesh that out a little bit more. The wild child, I think the wildness has to do with the fact that uh, I think theological education in the 2020s has to be multi-contextual. Mm -hmm. and, and what do I mean by that? I mean by that, obviously, um, that there's a theological vertical dimension to it, our relationship with God. Uh, but then there are at least three, three sites, and they're all overlapping, uh, the academic site, uh, the ecclesial site, and the societal site, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that, uh, that therefore means that, that uh, theological education is what I would call an education that unfolds uh, in and through many tongues already. Yes. Because as you know, each one of these sites has its own discourse, has its own vocabulary, has its own language and mm -hmm. its own set of performative sort of, you know, um, uh, norms, so to speak. Right. And and the challenge of theological education, I think, for all of us is, I think, to, to use the metaphor, I love that metaphor as well. Um, the, the wild child exists because it's a dance. It's a delicate dance between us and the Holy Spirit. As we are stepping into these multi-overlapping spaces of church, academy, and society, right? Because um, the, the flattening of uh, theological education, the, the church, the world, the fact that we are embodied creatures that are also part of the body of Christ, also part of this academic process, also, you know, political, economic, social creatures, Theological education has to find ways to, uh, to address that multi-contextuality, that multiplicity, uh, mm -hmm. and therefore needs many discourses, many disciplines, many, many tongues, so to speak. Yeah. And then the, the last thing I guess I would say for that would be, yes, I mean, I think a couple generations ago, we all assumed that to participate in theological education, one would 
pack up one's bags and, and move to the seminary. Now, if, if we already lived in a city that had a seminary, then maybe we didn't need to move, right? But, but the point was that seminary education was very much an in-person, uh, quote-unquote, residential, interactive, in-person in kind of task. And I think in a flattened, digitally mediated world, um, it's, all, it's all gone online at a certain level. And there's a mm -hmm. loss of that, one might say, a, kind, a loss of a certain kind of incarnationality uh, in theological education, meaning that uh, students are logging in now into portals uh, from everywhere to everywhere. Um, so there's a loss in some respects, but maybe there's a different kind of incarnationality that's going on, right? Um, one, of course, is, is, is interacting as a faculty member, as a professor with students differently in a digi digitally mediated platform than, than one is in in-person classrooms. But, sure. that but that doesn't mean that the digital interaction is not substantive. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, ha it has some limitations, but those kinds of conversations now possible were, were unthinkable two decades ago. Uh, student to student interactions, a student studying in Bogota, Colombia, in the same online classroom as one that's in Lagos, Nigeria, right. um, and then one that's in Singapore. They're all part yeah. of the same digital community. And they're engaging with a common set of readings, but bringing their very different perspectives and locatedness in the conversation. And then, of course, we invite them as they're now writing their research papers or engaging with the assignments for the course to say, what is it about your local church context? Maybe you're a pastor. Maybe you're already, you know, in, in the past, they would leave and go to seminary and then graduate and then go and find a job. These days, they're probably already in the pastorate as a seminarian. Right. Well, they don't have to go leave and go find a job. They're reading St. Augustine or they're reading Bartolome de las Casas and they're already asking the hard questions that 20 years ago they would have had to wait three or four years after they graduated. That's right. Yes. And, and so it seems to me that we didn't think about incarnational theological education a little bit differently. Less in the sense of what happens between the instructor or the professor and the student and more right. about how students are engaged in the mission of God already. And theological education is about how they're doing that already in context. I mean, I remember when I first met you, Nestor, you would tell me that, oh yeah, I go to Cuba every, every summer and I work yes. with the pastors there. And, and you were engaged in theological education with pastors yeah. on the ground. Now, you're probably now, I don't know how Cuba is in terms of getting through digitally, but um, my, my point is simply that that you, among other Latinx scholars, already knew that you had to, that, that engaging with theological education was always a matter already of engaging the church. For sure. In its, in its complexities, in its uh, multiplicities. Well, I mean, I think my point there was also in the sense that I think theological education in the Western context was abstracted, abstracted out of context, moved the seminary right. into an isolated higher yes. power, right? Yeah. Maybe send them into internship one quarter out of the three years. Yes. Um, and then as a result, you know, it's no wonder that our students were even less equipped after three years to go into the pastoral work because they had been removed from it at a certain level. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and I, I think that there's a sense in which the privilege that that afforded was to, to the detriment of equipping pastors. Now, the challenge, of course, of, you know, uh, the Latinx church was that you, you didn't have the privilege. I mean, the La Latino pastors were, were moved 
urgently into their, maybe even before they were quote unquote ready. They didn't Correct. have the privilege of waiting, of yeah. having access to theological education. So they made the mistakes relative to not having that access. Mm -hmm. um, but, but part of the point was that there's a sense in which they weren't disconnected from their communities. And so from the very beginning, they've always asked, what does this fairly Eurocentric theological education really have to give me for, right. the, needs of, for the needs of my community? Right? And I think that groups like HTI have, I assume, uh, I believe, you know, helped our students to navigate this space. On the one hand, a rigorous theological academic education, but one that recognizes that the accompaniment has to be mm -hmm. not just an academic accompaniment, but, but an ecclesial accompaniment. For sure. Right? For and, sure. and I think that's something that theological education, I think, is wising up to, generally speaking. Uh, yeah. now uh, through hot, some hard-learned lessons from our past. So, sure. Yeah, there is a whole lot more in your book, of course. I mean, uh, theological education, even just even thinking about institutional theological education being reinvented as well. Uh, new organizational theological education are emerging that do not necessarily ascribe to the association of theological schools. And so we are seeing this whole rethinking of theological education. That and a whole lot more, uh, you know, comes up in your book. So I do definitely invite uh, our listeners to go and, and purchase it because it is a really great contribution. Amos, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Um, to the listeners, thank you for joining us. It's been great uh, talking to all of you about theological education with Dr. Amos Young. Hasta luego. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI. 